Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes and today I'm joined by Dr. W. W. Keith Campbell. He's a professor in the Department of Psychology in the University of Georgia's Franklin College of Arts and Sciences. And he has a new book, The New Science of Narcissism, Understanding One of the Greatest Psychological Challenges of Our Time and what you can do about it. And that's going to be the focus of our conversation today. So, Dr. Campbell, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Oh, thanks for having me. I, I like what you're doing. I think it's great. <laughs> okay, thank you. So, uh, let's start with some basics here. What is narcissism? Narcissism, in the simplest terms, is um, an inflated or enhanced view of oneself. You think you're kind of better than other people and have a sense of entitlement. You deserve special treatment. So that's the very basic kind of idea of narcissism, this inflated ego. Yeah. But when we talk about it in the personality world or in the psychology world, there, there's a couple different forms that stand out. There's one form, which is what most listeners will think about with narcissism, which we call more technically grandiose narcissism. And this is this combination of sort of a sense of entitlement and um, um, maybe some hostility and antagonism, a sense of superiority, but also drive and ambition and extroversion and sometimes charisma. You know, so it's this combination of really ambition and drive with also an antagonism and willing to, you know, a willingness to exploit and, and manipulate other people. And this grandiose side is is one we see a lot in, you know, leadership, politics and dating and, you know, business, because often these these more grandiose folks are very charming and they're good at getting the job done and they, you, they're very likable and sort of short term. And so that's the one side of narcissism. And the other side, which is one you see more in clinical or counseling situations, is what we call vulnerable narcissism. And this is a form of narcissism. We have this sense of entitlement. You, deserve, you think you deserve special treatment, but your, your self-esteem is somewhat unstable. You don't feel you're quite as good. You're threatened easily. You become defensive very easily, um, sometimes a little bit paranoid that people aren't respecting how you know, your success, your level of success. And also some introversion. So these, the more vulnerable narcissism is sometimes called covert narcissism because you, you don't see it at the face. You meet somebody who's more grandiose and you're like, dude, I like that guy. What a big personality. He's a great leader. And then he ends up, you know, hitting on your mom and you're like, God, it's a terrible guy. Somebody who's more vulnerable, you might not see that at first. I mean, this guy's a little depressed, maybe it's a little sad. Um, but then they'll, they'll do something where like, really? You, you really thought you were that big a deal? Why weren't you doing anything if you thought they're but you know you don't see it because of that shyness. So that's that more vulnerable side of narcissism. And so we really have these two forms. And then this is what makes it really confusing is there's a clinical disorder, a, persona a personality disorder known as narcissistic personality disorder or NPD. And that is an extreme form of narcissism. So a very extreme form of grandiosity, but also some vulnerability in there and it becomes inflexible. So your personality becomes narcissistic and you can't really turn it on or off. You're just, it's all at ego all the time. And to make it a clinical disorder, it has to have impairment, clinically significant impairment. So if somebody who's a clinical, you know, clinically licensed psychiatrist or psychologist needs to say, hey Keith, your narcissism is interfering with your life in these noticeable ways. It's damaging your relationships. It's damaging your decision-making. 
and we need to seek treatment. So that's a disorder. Mm -hmm. And so when somebody, you meet somebody go, hey, that guy's a narcissist, you don't know if they're talking about us. It's somebody that's just sort of narcissistic, who's more grandiose, somebody's more vulnerable and insecure, or somebody who's got a, a literal personality disorder, which is relatively rare. And so the term gets very confusing because people use it to, to use those three different things. Mm -hmm. So narcissism isn't always a psychological or personality disorder, right? Because nowadays people tend to use the term narcissism as a sort of pejorative. So, you know, I people in in general use they will use narcissism in a pejorative way, like you're a narcissist. When I study it, you know, and I've been doing research on this a long time. Narcissism to me is. It, it's not necessarily positive, but it's really a trade-off. I don't look at it as really that pejorative. Mm -hmm. When I say somebody's narcissistic, I'm not like, oh, that's terrible. Entitlement, a sense of entitlement isn't my favorite thing, I'll be honest. But narcissism, I look at it as it's a, it's a personality structure. It exists for a reason. It confers benefits to people, and it confers costs to people. And as a psychologist, I just want to understand those benefits and costs to try to understand it. Mm -hmm. But we have these two major forms of narcissism, the vulnerable one and the grandiose one. But does it occur on a spectrum or not? It, it's, it's, it can be considered on a spectrum. Um, and there's a There's a couple ways. I'm being a little more technical for your show, if you don't mind. I, no, I, no and if you don't want me to, stop. I, I just am being a little more technical than normally. Normal answer is, yeah, it's on a spectrum, meaning that people are very high in narcissism or low in narcissism, and most people are in the middle. So that's kind of, in that sense of a spectrum, it definitely exists. But if you put grandiosity and vulnerability on a spectrum, it does make a bit of a spectrum where they share this sense of this kind of core sense of entitlement and, and importance. That's the one thing with ego is like, I'm better than you. I'm more important than you. And I deserve special treatment. So that seems to be sort of at the center of the spectrum. And then you can go to one side where it's more grandiose and extroverted and maybe entertaining and maybe more positive socially. And you go to the other side where it's more um, low self-esteem, narcissist or vulnerable, insecure and more sort of pathological, more likely to be treated because you're not as active in society. So there's a, a bit of a spectrum like that, but to be technical, it's a little bit of a work spectrum. Mm -hmm. <laughs> For, uh, there's a little bit of a curve in that, in that spectrum. So, but it, but it is, it can be considered that way. Has narcissism already been studied in behavioral genetics? I mean, do we know if it has some sort of innate component with a genetic basis or if it's the result of some environmental factors? There's been um, some research with narcissism in particular in smaller samples, uh, looking at sort of heredity or uh, basically behavioral genetics. Yeah. And then there's been much larger samples done with personality more broadly. So mm -hmm. you might use the big five model or other models of personality we have in these huge data sets. And what you find, um, kind of no matter how you slice it, is that narcissism has a, has a strong genetic component like all personality. If you look at heritability, it's about, you know, 0.5, 0.6. Mm -hmm. you, know, and, and you know, so it's more than half is, is sort of heritable with that like again, like a lot of personality. And then you find a big chunk of it is just, uh, you know, non-shared environment. It could be just your friends you meet, the mm -hmm. entertainment you want, the, who you hang out with, the school you go to. 
And then there's another piece, which is smaller than most people think, which is parenting. And that might be 10 or 20%. And, and this is what you find with all personalities. Parenting doesn't matter that much. It matters some, but it doesn't matter that much. Um, and what you find with narcissism is the more grandiose narcissists report that their parents, you know, were permissive and put them on a pedestal and told them they were special and kind of spoiled them a little bit. Sometimes yeah. they use the term spoiled child, you know, psychoanalytic literature. And the vulnerable narcissists look more like you see with sort of standard pathology. You find more cold parents, more abusive parents, a little more trauma. So you find that that more classically negative parenting with vulnerable narcissism. Mm -hmm. I understand. So at a certain point there, you mentioned that narcissism has both uh, benefits and costs. So the, uh, we already, do, we are, do we already understand a narcissism from an evolutionary perspective? I mean, is it an evolved trait? We, we, I should say we don't understand it from an evolutionary perspective, but uh, Nick Holtzman, for example, and some other people have written really good chapters on it. So people have made a real good effort to, to think about it evolutionarily. I don't think there's, I don't think we've figured it out by any means, but there have been some good efforts. With the evolution, what people often focus on is mating, because that's where you look at with evolution. And what you find with grandiose narcissism and sort of the modern world is you find they have more friends on Facebook and it's easier for them to find dating partners and they get more phone numbers when they go out on the town and all these things that suggest that narcissism is really good for short term mating. So that's one evolutionary argument they use. The other is status. You know, narcissism is good for attaining social dominance and social status. The, the challenge with a lot of this is when you go back and, you know, sort of you start going doing that sort of theoretical time, time travel with evolutionary models. And you go, OK, imagine a group of 100 humans and somebody gets real arrogant and tries to take power. Well, what happens is everybody else just gets rid of that guy. So yeah. you can't have power. We're going to take you out. So if you look at the old like some of the old uh, hunter gatherer literature, when they had people who were narcissistic, maybe they stole or they raped somebody, did something really horrible in the tribe, they'd take them out on a hunting trip and they just the guy wouldn't come back. They just kill people who are narcissistic or psychopathic. They're dangerous people in the community. And, and in those small tribes, they'd often eliminate them, have a family member do it. So it was, you know, to take control of it. At least this is in the anthropology literature. And it's always a little vague with this. Um, with bigger societies, you can have a lot bigger ego because you can have an ego and get people as sort of enforcers around you. And, you know, I mean, you, with, with any sort of, you go from hunter-gatherers to Egyptian pharaohs and you can see how narcissism that wouldn't exist with a bunch of hunter-gatherers, when you have a pharaoh, you could have expansive ego because you can be a god king. Just there's a bigger range of ego in a modern society, even a classic society than a hunter-gatherer society. Okay, so uh, another question. Do these uh, different types of narcissism map onto personality traits from the big five? Absolutely. Um, in my... The way I think about personality, or one of the ways I think about personality, is we have these this basic trait model, which you just call the big five. You know, and so people listening might be familiar with this, but it's five traits. We call them the big five because they're very broad. So one of the big five traits, for example, is extroversion. 
Yeah. Well, that can mean things like sociability, but it also means things like drive and ambition and agency. And so these are big traits. Mm -hmm. I look at these big five like ingredients. You can take these big five and mix them up in different ways to get different traits that people are interested in. So traits that become popular, like grit is a trait people were very interested in for a while. And the trait of grit looks a lot like a piece of uh, what we call conscientiousness in the big mm -hmm. five. And uh, something like narcissism can be made from the big five traits where you take a, a dollop of antagonism, you take this sort of low agreeableness or meanness or self-centeredness from, from antagonism, and if you mix that with some extroversion, especially the drive part of extroversion, you get grandiose narcissism. There's a few other pieces, but that's the main ingredients in it. It's sort of antagonism is the core with some extroversion. And if you keep that same core of antagonism, maybe a little different, but basically the same, and you add some neuroticism to it, some insecurity and some low self-esteem, you end up with something that looks like vulnerable narcissism. So the way I look at it is almost any trait we're interested in can be described in terms of these big five trait ingredients. Some people say, well, if it's in the big five, then you should make something else. But I, it's just we, we have lots of different words. We have thousands of words for personality traits. And so I look at the big five as kind of our big map. And then we use build these other models on top of it. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, talking now about the benefits, what are some of the main benefits that narcissists get from being from being narcissistic and also uh, is it also the case that people around them, people who are associated with them, can also get benefits from it or not? Um, it, the second one, it's, it's a little more complicated. In, okay. in, the grand, in grandiose narcissism, which again is what most people are interested in, the benefits seem to be short-term, meaning you're, it's good for meeting people in the short-term, it's good for starting relationships, it's good for public speaking, it's good for public performance seems to be good for competitive performance. Um, and it seems, yeah, what is it? Public, competitive, um, seems to be good for leadership emergence. Mm -hmm. That's a big one. So meaning if I take a group of strangers and say who's going to become the leader, narcissism predicts who's going to be the leader. So it has these very good short-term benefits. The challenge with narcissism also comes, often comes in the long term. So with narcissism, you might be good at becoming a leader, but after a while in leadership, you might end up becoming unethical, you might end up becoming selfish, and then the rest of the people don't want you as leader. You might be good at starting a relationship, but once your relationship gets going and your spouse, you get married, and your spouse is like, I want to be have love and kids and real connection. You're like, I don't really want that. I want more ego. And so I'm going to go cheat on my wife and find another relationship that gives me ego. Or, you know, financially, you go, I'm doing pretty well. And you go, but people don't know it. I need a new car. I'm going to go buy this new, you know, this new Mercedes and show off. And so I'm going to lose a bunch of my kids' money because I've got to look like I have status. So the costs of narcissism are often in the longer term. And they're often, you know, the, the costs are borne by the children, by the spouses, by the wives, by the coworkers, by the employees. You know, it, it's like addiction in that sense somewhat, that, that the, the addict himself or herself does better often than those in close loving relationships mm -hmm. so that if you think about his game theory in a way it's like it benefits the self especially in the short term hurts other people especially in the longer term 
And it, it's so, so the way a narcissist needs to work is it constantly bringing new people into his life, exploiting them and then bringing more people. And, you know, you've got to constantly be moving and evolving to keep exploiting people to make it work. Can people benefit from narcissists? Yeah. If you find a real driven egomaniac leader and you want to get to the top of the organization and you can attach yourself to that person like a remora to the back of a great white shark successfully you might be able to to go a long way you're just gonna have to give up a lot mm -hmm. i understand talking about leaders many people say that trump is a narcissist do you agree with that and why well i mean i, I really <laughs> i talk in politics for politics sake now so let me just stick really closely to the data here okay um we have done personality profiles of Trump and, and, you know, with Trump supporters and we did it with Hillary Clinton supporters and other people have done this as well. And when you do that, Trump's personality profile is, is just very narcissistic. It's, I mean, it's not, I don't know why it's, it's kind of like his brand almost from the eighties, you know, show somebody without an ego, I'll show you a loser. I mean, this is, it, it, so his, his structure is just very narcissistic. The difference you see is just how the extremity and the and the stability people who support him see him as more stable and less extreme more of like a strongman leader people who don't support him see him as unstable and more extreme and really dangerous so there's a large part of agreement like no one's like yeah that trump he's just a really soft-hearted warm person no one says it everyone is he's a bully he's a egomaniac he's self-centered but some people are like and he cares about us too and others are like and he's dangerous but there's not a lot of disagreement <clears throat> there's not a lot of disagreement on the personality structure itself that the agreement the disagreements are more like about the, the shape, that where it fits in, the structure of the politics. But again, this is based on data on, uh, of like crowdsourced personality profiling and other data. I've never interviewed the guy, I don't, I don't know beyond that, but that's sort of what I see. Mm -hmm. And do you think that mental health professionals and academic psychologists or psychiatrists should diagnose political figures and communicate that information to the public or not? Because that could influence uh, uh, how people look at those politicians and if they vote for them or not, if they support them or not. Yeah, I, um, I don't diagnose anybody. <clears throat> I mean, I, I'm happy to describe somebody's personality based on data, but I don't, I don't do diagnosis. Yeah. There is a rule in the US called the Goldwater Rule that was put in when it was Goldwater versus Lyndon Johnson for president. And the psychiatrist came out against Goldwater and said he was unstable and they lost in the lawsuit. So there was an idea that psychiatrists specifically, psychologists are, it's okay, but psychiatrists aren't supposed to call out mental disorders since then. Mm -hmm. um, personally, I think the psychiatrist should be able to call out any mental disorders they want. I'm not into telling people, I mean, they might get sued. It's their professional you know, that's, but, but it's a public figure. I'm, I don't want to stop anybody from providing any information at all. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm just, that's just not how I'm cut out. I like more information rather than less. Um, but obviously there's concerns. And in the case of Lyndon Johnson, I, I think the psychiatrists were completely wrong. I think Johnson was a, another narcissistic maniac and uh, we have data on that as well. And they, you know, <laughs> 
But and and, sh and the other thing I should add with this debate that you know my colleague Josh Miller has really thought about and and is that our way of diagnosing people now is different than it was in the '60s. So when a psychiatrist in the '60s looked at a, it, it's at a at a leader, they'd start looking for unconscious motivation. They'd start making up a story. Oh, this person's dad didn't love him, and that's what's driving this. Oh, he's short, and you know they had these very dynamic models that were hard to see. The models we use now are much more like big five based, self report. It's very face valid. It's easy to see. Does Trump seem, you know, grandiose in how he describes himself? Yes. You know, you don't have to do a lot of thinking. So our models now, because they're much more face valid, they work a lot better than the psychodynamic models. And not only that, but you can also start to, you can mechanize these. So you can start using these same models and apply them to Facebook pages or Twitter or to appearance. You can do it for anything else. It's not very good yet, but you can, you can find screens for these things. And, and so it's a different world than in the 60s where people really, they, you know, it's not like people are doing witchcraft with diagnosis. They're not, you know, they're not trying to read your mind and figure out your childhood. They're just like, look, he's kind of a, seems like kind of a jerk, has problems with his relationship. That sounds like this. And it's not that complicated. Yeah. So we've already talked about the benefits that uh, narcissists can have by being uh, narcissists. Uh, what are some of the costs that they can incur from being narcissists? You know, there, there's a couple sets of these. A big problem is the damage to interpersonal relationships. Yeah. One of the challenges with narcissism is, you know, relationships are often, you know, you've got these two big pieces. You have, you have I mean, life, you've got love and work, you know, you have heart and head, you got confidence and connection, you got all these, these two big forces. In relationships, um, you want that love piece. You want to have connection. You want to have empathy to make it, I mean, a, a committed emotional relationship, a good marriage in, in our modern society has a lot of emotional connection and empathy and, and warmth. And if you're narcissistic, that's something that's very hard for you to do. Mm -hmm. And so what you see, um, one of the big things you see in the literature is I want, well, the, the easy thing you see is plenty of people whose lives have been ruined because they got into relationships with narcissists and they cheated yeah. on them or they dishonest. And you can this this is all over the place because they're putting their ego before the relationship. So if you're in a relationship with somebody who puts his ego first, it's not going to be good. But that problem also that also affects people who are narcissistic. So you find people who are narcissistic saying, man, that, you know, that Ricardo's got this great relationship. It seems so, it seems real. And I want that. And I can't go buy that. I can't go buy a loving family. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? You can't, yeah. you can't, you can fake it. You can fake it in a Christmas card, but you can't, you can't really have it. So people are narcissistic themselves. And I didn't think this a long time ago, but with new research, they're aware of this, that they're cut off from relationships too. So that the relationship piece is the big one, but the other ones are, you know, you see with like um, risky decision-making, you just think you're too important. You, you get, you know, you get in front of your skis, as we used to say, that's a terrible metaphor. Um, like great skiing metaphors in Portugal. Um, but, you, <laughs> but you know, you, 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 you get, take too many risks, you invest too aggressively, you, you, you're too overconfident, you do stupid things. Um, 
So that can be a real cost and also interpersonally in groups. You're in a group and if you're not the leader of a group and you're narcissistic, you lead to a lot of trouble and so it ends up damaging that way. So it, it just, it messes up your social relationships and your decision-making process. And that can, that can harm you. That can harm narcissists emotionally or I mean, because they, because they are narcissists and they have such an inflated ego, could it be that even if they incur those kinds of social costs, they, they don't affect them that much? Yeah. It, it, so I'll give you like a specific example with something like investing. Yeah. So when you look at narcissism and investing, people who are narcissistic tend to, they tend to pick more volatile, 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 um, higher, uh, what do we call high beta investments. So they're probably, they're more attracted to, I'm guessing things like Bitcoin. I mean, but tech stocks, you know, just investments that are just much high flyers that can crash harder. Mm -hmm. um, when that works, when you're in a bull market, everybody who's a narcissist is a genius and it works great. And, th and they were so confident they're going to get rich. And everybody who sat there and thought, you know, I'm not really sure what to do. Who am I? I don't really understand the world's so complicated and sat on the sidelines, got nothing. So narcissism works great. The problem is every time you have a market that goes up, it always, it always flips. There's always a trend reversal. And, and if you're narcissistic, you get crushed in the trend reversal. So then the question you're asking is, do you feel bad? You go, man, I was just so arrogant. I just, you know, I got caught up in that. Or do you blame everybody else and then say, you know what? I made all this money every way, anyway and kind of lie about it. And that's kind of what we see in the data. So when we set up studies with like fake gambling, I mean, it's not real gambling, but like decision making with points and stuff. People who are narcissistic will be overconfident, they'll fail, but even when they fail, they still think they're gonna do better the next time. Mm -hmm. So there's just that learning process isn't as rapid because you're like, I'm awesome. That doesn't change when you fail once. I mean, you fail a hundred times, it might change. Mm -hmm. So, but that's what makes people who are narcissistic better entrepreneurs because they're <laughs> capable of failing a lot. And there's a big paper is after the book came out, but a big, People looking at entrepreneurship and you just see it kind of pulling for ego, pulling for narcissism because you need people who are like, I'm going to be the next Steve Jobs. You've got to have an ego to be successful as an entrepreneur. So that's what so you see more narcissism. Not everybody, not even close. But it, I mean, when I talk about like more, I mean, these are like kind of trends or patterns. You see. Right. Right. Yeah. I don't, I'm not painting with too broad a brush here. Mm hmm. Uh, so I've already asked you about the big five. Uh, what about the dark traits, the dark triad? Because narcissism is one of them, right? But does it have any relationship with psychopathy and Machiavellianism? Yeah, very much. So um, one idea, this, this was a guy, uh, Professor Del Paulus came up with this at, at British Columbia, this idea of the dark triad of traits, and it really caught on. And I don't know why, but it, it's really useful for seeing how these, it, it's how these different traits are different and the same. And so what you find with the dark triad, the term dark mm -hmm. refers to antagonism or in the big five terms, low agreeableness. Mm -hmm. So what the dark triad is are traits that share this kind of core of callousness, meanness, uh, antagonism, whatever, mixed in different ways. So if you take the, the callousness and you mix it with 
extroversion and drive and, and sociability, you get narcissism. This is kind of a likable trait as long as that person's getting their needs met. You know, somebody who's narcissistic gets in front of a crowd and they want you to love them too. So there's right. a, you know, there's a feedback. In it. You take that callousness and you don't really add that extroversion. You just focus straight on meanness. You get something that looks more like, like uh, psychopathy, which is, it's a little more, I guess you could add a little impulsivity too. Uh, depending, I mean, there's a lot of, and I won't get too in the weeds, but there's multiple models of psychopathy out there. But in the, in the dark triad, you're, you're getting primarily meanness and maybe a little bit of, uh, a little bit of impulsivity. So I'm just going to take what I want when I want, and you can't stop me. It's a much more directed form. So people who are psychopathic don't often do as well because they're just so intent on what they want. They end up in jail. You know, where these narcissistic, you, you're more interested in the charm and the ego and ego can work. But if you just want stuff or power, it's a little bit um, it, it can be a little bit more criminal. Um, and then Machiavellianism is this idea that comes out of the book, The Prince by mm -hmm. Niccolo Machiavelli. Yeah. Um, and it's um, and when people think about Machiavellianism, they think about manipulativeness. Mm -hmm. And it's usually, so it's a combination of this meanness and antagonism, but also this sort of clever planfulness, at least theoretically, there's some, there's some planfulness and it's hard to find in the data a little bit. Um, these Machiavellian figures appear in, in a lot, of, like, like Game of Thrones has great Machiavellians, like Littlefinger, or there's some other ones that are just these really manipulative, like the people behind the throne. So the narcissists want the throne. They want they want the throne because they want to sit up there with the hat and have everyone love them. Yeah. The Machiavellians aren't really that interested in the love. They want the control. So they're the usually the the idea is they're the power behind the throne. Um, and so but so you share that willingness to use people like pawns and manipulate people and people are just toys for you. But with Machiavellians, it's more towards some strategic goal. Mm -hmm. So if you read if you read Machiavelli, it's not as bad. You know, he's trying to make stuff work. Even he's like, yeah, you got to do these horrible things right away, but in the long term, it's going to make things smoother sailing. Mm -hmm. um, I don't mean to be so anti Machiavelli and say have a place, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. So all those things. So the idea is they all share that core of antagonism, but there's nothing magic about a triad. So people then started talking about sadism which is this meanness, but pleasure. So people who are mean, but really enjoy being mean. Um, and so people started calling it the dark tetrad because they added sadism to it, that sort of energized meanness. Mm -hmm. And that's what you see with some of the really active trolls and stuff on social media is high sadism scores. You see some narcissism, but sadism seems to be more because they, they enjoy the suffering they cause. So you can, you can see you could build several traits out of that core antagonism. Mm -hmm. And what is the prevalence of narcissism in society? I mean, and does it differ between modern societies and the more traditional ones or not? It's um, so if you look at narcissistic personality disorder, yeah. you're looking at something like one or two percent. Okay. It's a relatively low base rate. Um, those numbers are hard to get. It's just very hard to under, you know, the big surveys and, and uh, so it's hard to know if they've changed or cross culture very well because of the numbers. In terms of the trait of narcissism, mm -hmm. um, it seems to be something that's embedded in culture. So culturally in the US, it's gone up, you know, since the 60s and with young people and it, it might be going back down again. I don't know because we haven't collected data, but 
it looked like kind of went up and then after the great recession it started stopping starling and sort of the grandiose stuff going down i think vulnerability is probably going up but i don't, I don't have data for it but you definitely see changes within a culture and you can see differences across cultures too so high trust high connection cultures maybe low narcissism uh but more um more disconnected, suspicious cultures, you'll get more narcissism because people have to kind of look out for themselves more. And, and there's some other variables too, but there are sort of, there are cultural differences. This kind of research is hard to do because you know the way we have to equalize scales and such across cultures. Um, but it does seem that difference, in it does seem to be differences in terms of the people. And then the other thing you can do is say is the culture is self narcissistic. Mm -hmm. Is it a self-promotional culture? Is it a materialistic culture? Is it, a, you know, kind of a detention or expressionistic culture? And, and you can look at culture as well. And that's and so America is a very narcissistic culture. Yeah. But it sure. doesn't mean everybody in it's narcissistic. Sure. It's just the culture itself, but the people not aren't necessarily. And that's where it gets confusing. Mm -hmm. So you focus on American society, but. Uh... Is it that narcissism nowadays is uh, at higher levels than before? It, it, um, it depends, I think, on the, on the society and the data we have are so thin. So mm -hmm. I'll give you like one example. If you look at the research done in China, and this is a little bit data, but they did, they've done cross-sectional research, they've done some over time research. It looks like narcissism is increasing. Mm -hmm. And it looks like it's linked to urbanization, the one child policy a bit, mm -hmm. and some other things. So sort of the general urbanization and westernization of China seem to be linked to greater narcissism. Um, in uh, research done in Germany, between East and West Germany, when the, when the wall fell, West Germany had higher narcissism, East Germany had a little higher self-esteem. And then it changed a little bit over time. So these data sets aren't rock solid by any means, but they suggest somehow that these cultures, maybe more modern, expressionistic, less trusting cultures are going to be home to narcissism because you're going to need to look out for number one. High trust societies are going to be less, have less space for narcissism. But people feel good about themselves in these communal societies, so they have high self-esteem. I like myself. Yeah. Are you better than everybody else? No, I'm not better than everybody else. I just like who I am. It's a great place. Love my people, love my culture, love my family. Very happy person. I don't have to be better than anybody else. Live in a chaotic society. Everybody's scrambling for the, you know, to be the top of the gerbil pile. Are you any good? No, man, I'm in the middle of the pile. I'm a loser, you know, but then you get to the top and you see the sunlight and you're like, yeah, I'm a winner. So those societies are going to pull from more narcissism because they're more individualistic. So I think you can arrange societies in different ways to get it or not as well. Mm -hmm. And what about the effects that new technology might be having on people, particularly the internet and more specifically social media? Does it promote narcissism or not? Yeah, so um, this is another one of those historical things when we first started looking at narcissism in social media what yeah. you found and you, and you still find this is that people who are narcissistic have more connections mm -hmm. and they self-promote more it's kind of what you think so you go to social media site to somebody who's narcissistic they're like i'm going to use this as an opportunity to put a positive image of myself out yeah and i'm going to connect to a lot of people 
So, and you see that across, uh, you see that across platforms now. So there's this idea that people who are narcissistic are using these sites to self-regulate, and that's pretty solid, I think. Uh, more selfies, different kind. You see it in a lot of things. The other piece you see is because of the nature of a network, if everybody is narcissistic, is putting out all this self-promoting content and they're connected more, when you go online, what you're going to see, your social media world is going to be more narcissistic than your normal world because it's basically filled with these self-promoting individuals. So, it, it, so social media distorts the world into making it a much more narcissistic world. And in fact, everybody's got to self-promote on social media because that's just the nature of how narcissism works. And, and get, it's like a common dilemma. If somebody, if they start doing it, then everybody has to do it. Um, but then the question is, do you take a, do you take just, you know, some happy-go-lucky, well-balanced person and put them on social media and they turn into a narcissistic, uh, you know, maniac? Yeah. This is a new idea of an old idea from the celebrity literature called situationally acquired narcissism. Mm -hmm. So the idea is, hey, you know, you got this podcast, you're just a nice dude. And pretty soon we start, you know, getting you in the back of a limo. And next thing you know, your head expands and you think you're a legend. So this, you know, in the old days, they said, you know, if you're treating celebrities, narcissism might be kind of part of the job. It might not be a trait. I mean, it's even the DSM a little bit. Um, so people looked at that. You don't really necessarily find it in celebrities. It's not clear. Um, and it doesn't seem to be the case in social media as much as I thought. So originally I thought it would be the self-reinforcing process. It seems to be that people are narcissistic. It is reinforcing. But if you're not, it doesn't seem to be pulling people in that way. And it's probably more complicated than, than I understand or anyone at this point. But part of what's going on is there's a lot of pressure now on social media. And this happened over the last three or four years. You can see it in some of the work like Gene Twang he's done and, and uh, you know, really looking at this. But that um, people are getting – they're starting to get very negative self-views being on social media because they're comparing themselves to people. So we have these you know, classic social comparison processes. And when you compare yourself to somebody who's better looking and richer and has a better life than you, you, you can feel bad. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the other process they talk about a lot is fear of missing out or FOMO. So if I'm on social media and I see all my friends having fun and I'm not, I feel like, you know, they kind of rejected me. So social media became very hard for a lot of people, especially young, young girls, young women, that, it, you know, a lot of these social comparison processes, because everyone's out there showing themselves, mm -hmm. you know, in Instagram in particular, so you see these cultural changes. So everyone moves from Instagram. They go, you know, I'm going to get off Instagram and maybe I'll go to TikTok because that's not as threatening. And at one point they went to Snapchat because then things were ephemeral and it wasn't as threatening. Mm -hmm. So these narcissistic processes, on one hand, that can be really appealing. On the other hand, make other people feel bad. So there's a dynamic in there that's that I don't think is really well understood. Mm -hmm. But we can't really say that there's a causal relationship between the use of social media and narcissism. I mean, the technology itself doesn't cause narcissism. I, I don't think at an individual level it does. Okay. I think at an individual level, it's more likely to be a tool for people to promote their, their own narcissism mm -hmm. and to kind of not necessarily enhance it, but maintain it. So I would say it's a narcissistic maintenance tool for some people, but I don't think, and, and again, this is 
different than when I thought 10, 15 years ago, and it might be different world than it was. So back then when you got on social media, if you were one of the early people, it had a different effect than it does now. It wasn't so much of a blood sport as it is now. Um, but yeah, I don't see social media. I don't see people getting on there. Just your head just explodes. And then it, it just doesn't seem to work like that. It seems to be if you're narcissistic, you get on there, you can use it. If you do it well, you can maintain your narcissism, you get followers, you can build a brand, you can do all that stuff. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Is it possible for people to identify a narcissist online? Because I guess that that would be in some way important for people to protect themselves. Even in real life, it would be great if they could protect themselves from narcissists well, and uh, <laughs> the emotional toll they take on people's lives. But is it possible to do that online? It is. Um, but it's not that great. So okay. when we first looked at this, my student, Lord, I mean, this, I think it was 08, 2008. So it's been a long time looking at Facebook. And what we found, or she found, was that um, people can detect narcissism. So if I get a bunch of people's narcissism scores and get their Facebook pages and show a bunch of strangers, like how narcissistic are these people based on their Facebook page? People can guess with some accuracy, but it's not a lot of accuracy. Mm -hmm. And the problem is when this came out, people are like, oh, my God, I can detect narcissism. And I saw this TV show where the FBI was like yeah. they jailed somebody based on their Facebook profile. And I'm like, no, no. I, I mean, I describe it as like it's like shaving in, a, in your reflection in a car window. Yeah. You can do it, but you really want a mirror, you know. And I think with Facebook, you can see you can see traces. I mean, I think about personality in a way, and it is like you have a personality and it leaves traces in your life. It leaves traces in your clothes, leaves traces in your office, it leaves traces on your, you know, on your, you know, what you're, you do during the day, it leaves traces on your social media page. It just, it just sort of spreads everywhere and you can detect it. You can detect it if, by yourself. You can train yourself to be better at it using lens models and people have started using computer models to do this, you know, but when they were doing the computer models to, to, to train on personality, they were using that, that my personality data that got messed up with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica and it got, it got back into politics and I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but it's hard now to get good social media data. The companies have this all and they know what's going on, but it's very hard for me to get it. Mm -hmm. And it's hard for me to do it. Right. Is it possible to reduce narcissism individually? I mean, its levels, or can we only do it at a sort of collective level? Oh, I, it's, I think it's certainly possible to do it individually. Okay. And Originally, the, the idea was that people who are narcissistic don't want to change and they really can't change. And that was the idea clinically for, for years. That's what I thought when I started doing this. Um, and we've learned two things since then that it's really changed my opinion. The first, and I, I sort of mentioned this or hinted at before, is that I thought people who are narcissistic didn't want to change. But it turns out when you interview a lot of them, they see a problem, which is that interpersonal connection. They, they, they know that they're missing that. A lot of them, not everyone, but there's a, there's a gap. So there's some desire to change. The other thing is the possibility of change. And we've, we've found in a lot of research, some big meta-analyses, that people can change. 
the personality can change. It can change in a lot of ways. So one way we do that in our society is with psychotherapy. That's kind of your classic mechanism. We often don't think about it as changing personality. We think about it as changing the disorder, but really it's kind of changing personality. So if you look at narcissism in therapy, uh, there's no clinical trials. Nobody's done it. A lot of reasons for that. Um, but there's a lot of studies where people have had narcissism in therapy, therapeutic trials. And so maybe it's in a clinical trial for something else. or they're test, you know, testing small groups. And what you find is in a lot of, a lot of domains, people who are narcissistic report changing in therapy. It, it seems to, to be beneficial. The challenge is that you get huge dropout rates, mm -hmm. like 40%, meaning that, that people are narcissistic when they go into therapy and you start getting this more negative feedback about yourself. Like, dude, just take a look at you, who you are. And you're like, Oh my God, I don't really like this person. I'm just going to get out of here. So there's, it's a real challenge. If you're, if you're narcissistic, just to stick with therapy. Whereas if you're depressed, you're like, I just feel terrible. I'm going to stay in here until I get better. Mm -hmm. With ego, there's this positivity to it. So it makes it harder to stick. But if I think if people can get in therapy, they want to change, they get decent therapy, and it's certainly possible for change mm -hmm. if they stick with it. Mm -hmm. But do these people usually seek out for help, for professional help? I mean, particularly if they suffer from the disorder, the narcissistic yeah. personality disorder. So um, what you find is the, the more vulnerable form, you know, sometimes people are more vulnerable will go into counseling. Grandiose forms rarely do except it's often if it happens it's often for another cause so it might be marital therapy that gets them in there okay and they start talking and the, and the therapist's like yeah maybe we need to have another issue here or um they can get in there for addiction mm -hmm. so addiction you know cocaine addiction or alcohol addiction is another reason people get into treatment and then you start seeing the personality disorder there okay so we just had a quick visit background. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, I mean, and I mean, in terms of how we classify something as a mental disorder, so for example, if there's someone that is a narcissist or that even suffers from narcissistic personality disorder, but that uh, brings some benefits to them. I mean, they they don't uh, they don't incur many costs. They live a good life, at least from their perspective. And if they don't feel the need to seek help, should we classify that as a disorder? Or I um, I think the line between normal and abnormal or ordered and disordered is is not a bright line. Okay. It's much more of a gradient. Mm -hmm. I see them as very similar. The same way I'd say, like, I'm depressed. They're like, are you going to seek treatment? No, I'm not clinically depressed. I'm just depressed. I'm going to go take a nap. I'm going to go, go, go. I shouldn't be taking a nap. That's the exact wrong thing to do. I'm going to go exercise. I'm going to go get in the sun, go play with a puppy or something. So we, we have these ranges. And what happens when it becomes a disorder is that's the line where you say, okay, now you can go to your insurance company and they'll pay for treatment for you. Mm -hmm. So you need a diagnosis to get the treatment. That's the point of the diagnosis. It's like an insurance code. Um, so we we have those um, we have those bright lines in the in the world. Those those bright lines between disordered and and ordered. In order to say, okay, now you get treatment. Mm -hmm. But if we didn't have it for treatment, I don't think it would be that bad. And 
you know, again, with narcissism, the, if you're not being impaired, it's not a disorder. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm having, you know, bizarre and unusual thoughts all the time, and I think God's talking to me and I'm living in the woods and I'm making art, it's just fine. I'm feeding myself, I'm bathing myself, I have some relationships. That's not a disorder, you know? So even it's something that extreme. So I, I like to think if people are functioning and they're working, it's not a disorder. It's a, it's a personality that might be a little bit uneven or a little bit off. Right. Um, but it's it's not a disorder. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting because that tells us that the way we classify something as a disorder has a big cultural element to it. And for example, there are societies where people who suffer from what in modern societies we would classify as mental disorders uh, I mean, they are put in a specific social role and they fulfill that role and they live happily or whatever. And people uh, don't think that there's some problem with them. Yeah. So I, um, I and I, I, I should be, ner- I don't want to start going back to the 60s idea that mental illness is a cultural mm-hmm. construction. And, you know, we just, we can take it. I mean, it got a little extreme back mm-hmm. in the 60s when yeah. we shut all the hospitals down. People can have extreme mental disorders, you know, with some forms of schizophrenia, you know, catatonia or something. It's really bad. But with, with on that sort of relatively, in that relatively normal range, you can get pretty far out there. And as long as you're doing okay, you don't need to classify it in the, as a disorder unless society says this is a disorder. And societies vary on that. I mean, if you open up the DSM manual and you go to the end, there's like here are different disorders that exist in some cultures and not in others. And there's some definitely some cultural flexibility there, both in terms of extremity and definition and, and what you do with people. I mean, it could be if you had a society like, you know, like, man, these narcissists, we have this perfect place when we have the core, you know, the French Foreign Legion or something. You know, like where you just send people that and they fit there. They don't fit anywhere else, but they really fit there. So if there was something like that, it would be, you know, for and not just for narcissism, but for anything with narcissism, we probably have that, unfortunately. But mm-hmm. um, and with, with psychopathy, you end up with prisons. So if you go into a prison system, what you and you measure psychop and you measure narcissism as too as well, because we've done that, you find very high rates of psychopathy in prisons. So that's one thing society does with people who are who are sort of psychopathic. They put them in jail because they do crimes, and they're like, "Okay, we're just going to remove you from society." Mm-hmm. So yeah, this is a really big question, and um, no, things are biological and they're sort of social and they're psychological, and it's kind of complicated. <laughs> yeah. So just one last question: What are some of the questions about narcissism? that you would like to see answered, that don't have a definite answer to them yet? I, um, I, I haven't had this question yet. It's very interesting. What I would like to see is very good, high-definition, dynamic data of people, meaning I would like to get measure people's emotions, you know, sort of, over a week period of time at very high density. I'd like to measure their, their self-esteem at very high density. I'd like to measure their social relations. Just very, I just think our measurement needs to go up a whole nother level. And we're starting, you know, people have been working on this stuff for 20 years, trying to figure out how to do these measures. 
But I think we need just, we, we've really figured out how to measure narcissism. I mean, I, the book, it partly is because I think we kind of nailed what it is and how to measure it and how to think about it. But the question is how it's working socially. We can, we can up our game a whole nother level with really intense measurement. The other thing you need is the dynamic system statistics. So you need people who know those sort of dynamic models that can come in on the statistical end, and you need the computer science end. So it's, this is sort of team-based approach where you can really nail down the, the manifestation of personality in the social world over a period of time and try to understand it that way. So that would be really cool, but it's money and a team, and I nerded out there. I hope that's appropriate. But that's kind of what I would, I would want is just, just take our data up to another level. Yeah. Okay, great. So just before we go, apart from the book, are there any good places on the internet where people can find your work? Um, yeah, the, the, okay, the easiest thing of my work on narcissism is the TED Ed. I did a TED Ed cartoon with those great cartoon people over there. And it's a great cartoon. It's like two minutes. And that's better than anything I've ever written. So kudos to the cartoonists at TED Ed. Um, or I always recommend uh, people go to Google Scholar. People, they like, where do you find research? Go to Google Scholar, type in narcissism, type in meta-analysis. <laughs> Whatever you're interested, type in that word and type in meta-analysis. All the world science is available, not all of it, but it's available. And then once you get out, we find it there, you find Sci-Hub and then you're good to go. Okay, great. So, guys, again, the book is The New Science of Narcissism, Understanding One of the Greatest Psychological Challenges of Our Time and What You Can Do About It. Uh, run and buy it. It's a great read. I really love the book. So, Dr. Campbell, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Once again, uh, glad you're doing all this. I think it's a great project. Hello everybody, thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've been doing this channel for three years, bringing you top academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. And I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Even one dollar would already be a great help. Otherwise, you also have links to PayPal in the description box of the interview. And please share it, leave a like, and hit the subscription button if you liked the interview. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perelga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Anian Kata, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Henry Kalenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Kintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windager, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, George Spigny, Phil Kavanagh, Cory Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Hugney, Alexander Dunbauer, Omri Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Hal Herzog, Nuno Machado, 
Don Ross, João Alves da Silva, Jonathan Librant, Oslem Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Staten T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Eira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yacila Deza Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adaner Usmani, My, Pro My Producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Sergio Codriano, Luis Caetano, Matthew Lavender, Tom Van Egdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardas France, and Niruban Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Ruzieski, Rosie, and James Pratt. Thank you for all.